Welcome to Red, White, and Confused. I'm your host, Heather Evans. So this week is the third and final installment by my media and politics students this semester. So today, you are getting ready to hear a show that is completely produced, edited, all of that, by two additional students in media and politics over at UVA Wise, um, Wesley Campbell and Ellie Peterson are going to talk a little bit about the importance of local news. Um, I have really enjoyed listening to the students' shows this month. I hope that all of you have as well. If you've missed any of those shows, by the way, this program is available by podcast, so you can catch up anytime on any of the podcasting platforms. So go over to Spotify, type in Red, White, and Confused, and listen to the last three weeks' worth of shows. I have been so impressed this semester. Way to go, everybody in the class. You've done an excellent job. Um, Without any further ado, here's the show um, by the last two students. Again, that's Wesley Campbell and Ellie Peterson. I'm Wes Campbell. And I'm Ellie Peterson. And this is Red, White, and Confused. We are students here at UVA Wise with Dr. Heather Evans, and we're doing the podcast this week. As part of Dr. Heather Evans' Media and Politics course at the University of Virginia's College at Wise, Wesley and I wanted to discuss an important issue and topic within Southwest Virginia, the loss of local newspapers. Dr. Doris Graber and Dr. Joanna Dunaway's book, Mass Media and American Politics, A book we have examined in class discussed that older citizens form the basis of local newspaper readership and that new media forms such as social media and large media conglomerate takeovers have contributed to a decline in newspaper readership in small communities. Stories such as Rally Wise Meeting, AED Purchases Approved in Coburn, and Local Veteran Recognized for Service were some of the stories published from Wise to Abingdon and across Southwest Virginia by local newspaper companies. Would these be stories you would find at a national level? No. Instead, these are often important stories that might be lost. To see the impact of newspapers on local communities and uh, community development, we interviewed two guests. Our first guest today is Dr. Joshua Dar. Dr. Dar is an associate professor of local communication in the Manship School of Mass Communication and Department for Political Science at Louisiana State University. Dr. Dar's co-author publication, Homestyle Opinion, How Local Newspapers Can Slow Polarization, addresses local newspaper strategies, especially regarding changes to their opinion pages. Hello, Dr. Dar. Can you give an overview of the article to our audience? Yeah, so Homestyle Opinion grew out of an earlier article that we'd written, uh, Newspaper Closures, Polarized Voting Behavior, where we collected original data on where newspapers had closed and um, found the polarization increased after they closed. So we measured that with split ticket voting, um, you know, where you vote for one party at one level, another party at another level, and found that uh, there was more straight ticket voting after a newspaper closed. So people were relying on party to make their decisions uh, more than individual candidate. Uh, factors. And so we took that as evidence of polarization. That article did pretty well. Journalists liked it, um, which was great. And so it got a little bit of uh, attention in the journalistic community, uh, which was mostly exciting because the of what eventually became Homestyle Opinion, uh, where the uh, 
Julie Mackinnon, who was at the time editor of the Desert Sun, uh, Palm Springs, California newspaper, read the article and said, you know, well, their mechanism was national politics, right? That when local politics goes away, people read national politics more and that polarizes them. And she said, well, we can do something about that. We can drop national politics from our op-ed page uh, for an entire month. So they got rid of all, and this was July, 2019. So they got rid of anything about the very active democratic primaries, anything about the rallies and statements Donald Trump was making at the time, anything about the uh, Bob Mueller report testifying before Congress. Uh, There was a lot going on in national politics and none of it made it into the Desert Sun op-ed page that month. We found out about this randomly through a Google alert about our names, uh, actually, and uh, decided, you know, we we should measure this. This is, you know, in grad school, they say, like, look for national natural experiments. And we were like, this this is that. This is what they've always told us to look for. So we uh, got surveys in the field in Palm Springs and in Ventura as a comparison community and uh, found that during that month when Palm Springs got rid of national politics and Ventura didn't, uh, polarization slowed down in Palm Springs, but did not in Ventura. And so it kept rising. You know, it was specifically among those who you'd probably expect to, it to be, the those who read local news, those who know the most about politics, those who participate the most in politics, sort of the most active people, the, the opinion leaders of, of communication theory that have the most influence on others. And so we thought this was pretty good evidence, not just that it's it's good if newspapers don't close, but that there's actual things that journalists and editors can do to slow polarization at the local level, because it kind of seems like it's a, a you know unstoppable force nationally. But locally, there's stuff journalists can do. Your research discusses the potential crises facing newspapers, including the firing of editors who run opinion sections and the closing of local newspapers that lack financial support. How do you believe local newspapers can maintain their relevance in shifting news environment? It's tough. Um, A lot of the crisis is in their own ownership structures. There's been a very strong move towards uh, hedge funds buying local newspapers. And what this means in practice is that it's not, they don't just need to make money if the hedge fund owns them. They need to make more money than they made the previous month. And that means in many cases that they have to cut costs and they have to cut reporters. Massive, massive layoffs in the reporting space. Newsrooms are, are much smaller than they used to be. And there, there's some really great Pew reports that track this uh, from the Pew Research Center. It also means that they're they're selling off their headquarters as well. Uh, so a lot of these old newspaper headquarters are now apartment buildings. And my favorite example is the one in Denton, Texas. They had to sell their news headquarters and they sold it to, to Chip and Joanna Gaines from HGTV. And it's now their headquarters. And then they had to report on it. <laughs> Like Chip and Joanna Gaines buy our old headquarters. It's just like, you know, they used to be sort of central, old, established forces within a community. And now they're much smaller than they used to be and sort of being forced out into office parks and suburbs if they even have physical headquarters anymore. COVID was a great excuse to not have a newsroom, but newsrooms are good. They help reporters interact with each other and talk to each other in ways that you can't really replicate on Slack. Anyway, it's tough to overstate how bad things are for for local newspapers at the moment. I don't know that it's clear what the steps forward are. I think that there could be help in the form of regulation in terms of going back to what 
we used to have, which was restrictions on who could own how many news sources. Encouragement toward local ownership, again, used to be very much part of FCC policy. But right now, the model, the business model of local newspapers is to squeeze every drop out of them. And that's the hedge fund model. More than half of Americans who read a newspaper read a newspaper owned by a hedge fund now. And so it's not that they own more than half the newspapers, it's that they own a lot of the big ones. That makes it tricky because, you know, I also am not, I believe in the power of local news, but I also really don't believe in scolding people for not reading it because the product's not very good anymore. <laughs> the product has gotten worse. I think you could hypothetically still have a good product, but the investment's not there from the ownership side. I'm looking more towards maybe nonprofit models. I think if you want to get it, if you want to make news better and have more people read it, you need to look at ownership. If current trends continue in ownership, there's not going to be any people to report and there's not going to be anything worth reading. Yeah. I can agree, especially in Southwest Virginia. We've seen a lot of local newspapers here, Klaus, in just the past few years, especially since the start of COVID happened. Newspaper readership has decreased that they've closed. Your study of the Desert Sun's changes showed that local opinion pages slow polarization and engage communities. Do you think similar changes can be made in other local newspapers and have the same results? Yeah, I think it's it's possible with a little bit of investment, right? I mean, a big part of our story is resources. Like the Desert Sun happened to have an opinion editor because it's very easy to publish a wire story that's already been edited for you, a, a syndicated opinion column. I don't think it was anything about the fact that it was in Southern California that made the Palm Springs work. It was that they had an opinion editor still. And they had an editor that was willing to try stuff. But you can't try stuff if you don't have the resources. The opinion editor had to do a lot more work in July because it was a lot more editing to you know, solicit pieces from the community from people who hadn't typically written op-eds before, that they require more editing than something that lands on your desk ready to publish. And so if you don't have that editor, you're less likely to do something like this. They also really leaned on a nonprofit syndicated source called Cal Matters, which provides free coverage, uh, free stories to its participating newspapers. And so the reason they were able to do the experiment is that they tripled their coverage from Cal Matters. And it was all about California, which was good, but it was also about op-eds written by CEOs and you know PR, like a lot of corporate PR made its way in there because it was about the bill that would reclassify Uber employees as a way that made that the companies wanted them to be classified. And that bill ended up passing actually. But a lot of that sort of thing. So that was a little bit tricky, but ultimately it was local and it wasn't about partisanship. If you wanted to make something like this work in somewhere like Virginia, there would need to be a similar infrastructure around. Because I don't think you can necessarily depend on the papers themselves to always hire the number of employees it would take to do something like this. But you can make it easier by making the easy wire coverage state specific, right? So if there was a Cal Matters, you know, if there was a, a Virginia Matters, if there was something that could help make it easier to publish state relevant content, maybe be tougher to make it relevant to Southwest Virginia or Southeast Virginia or Northern Virginia, but it would be about, at least it would be about state policy. In a state with a very closely split legislature like the House of Delegates is, state policy is often quite interesting and sort of on a razor's edge of, of whether it's going to go one way or the other. You know, I know the Roanoke Times recently cut their state house reporter and, you know, they're owned by Lee Enterprises. They're not even a hedge fund. It's tough to do this kind of thing if you don't have the resources, but one of those resources could be a shared resource among all the state's papers. It doesn't all have to be within newsroom. And so as more of this moves into the nonprofit space, that's something to explore. How do we make better uh, communal resources? How does investigative journalism uh, impact local newspaper engagement and what is their impact on local policy? 
it's probably the most valuable thing you can do to make government work better is to have really good investigative journalism. One of the problems is the, um, the kind of people who talk about waste, fraud, and abuse, how government's wasting all your money, how you can't trust them, tend to be the kind of people that don't love journalism. If you had stronger investigative journalism, you would have much less corruption and, and waste in government. This is proven over and over again. Great book by James Hamilton called Democracy's Detectives makes this case really clear. I, I like to think of it in terms of healthcare, where an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. If you've just got somebody out there watching what's going on, asking politicians questions, making sure that their voters know what's going on, things are going to work better. You're going to save money. And so one of the best things, and we have this aversion in America to government directly supporting journalism. And, and I don't know if that's the right answer or not, but good government requires sunshine, which requires journalists to know what for. Investigative journalism at the local level has the potential it's not just investigative journalism, however, it's the regular kind of beat coverage. It's making sure you have someone in City Hall. And actually, you know, students are pretty good for this. Student-based models of statehouse reporting are, have taken off quite a bit in recent years. We have a, a student, we have a statehouse bureau at the Manship School here in Baton Rouge, where I think our students placed like 400 stories around the state last year. So this like teaching hospital model of teaching journalism helps do that basic function of making sure there's someone in the building watching and writing about it. I'm also currently studying a model in the Midwest, a bunch of Midwest cities called Documenters, where they pay people to go talk about city council meetings, you know, live tweet what they hear and ask questions. And, you know, here's $16 an hour, go pay attention to the politicians. And like, that's a worthwhile investment because it pays off later, not just in terms of actively passing helpful programs, but also preventing government from functioning without anybody watching it. Local news really, in a lot of ways, helps protect the, the immune system almost of government. And like I said, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And I feel like it really applies to a lot of different local newspapers across the country and how they can work to prevent going out of business because they're really important, especially like Southwest Virginia where can access can be hard to come by. Absolutely. No, it, lo, newspapers are, they go back to before the founding of, you know, Amer American people want local news and they've been able to deliver it in into rural communities, into areas that don't have that kind of access. And it helps everybody from people trying to participate to the government trying to know what to do to help them. It's, you know, it's not great if we're going into an era where we don't have that. And I do think demand is strong, however, and we'll figure something out. We just don't know what it is yet. And it probably doesn't look like the old somebody in a truck throws a paper at your door every morning model. But it'll be something because I do think people want and need local news and we need to figure it out sooner than later. Thank you, Dr. Dar, for coming on the show again. And the information you provided was very insightful to our audience, especially detailing how your study showed that papers can slow polarization in their local opinion pages and how newspapers can really engage with the communities, the challenges facing them, and the potential solutions to these issues. Our next guest is Jeff Wester, the editor at their local paper, The Coalfield Progress, as well as The Post and The Dickinson Star. So uh, what role do you think that smaller like local papers play in a community? Let me give a very specific example not in Virginia. It's a very specific example that is in the news this week nationally. It has to do with a small town newspaper in Oklahoma. Either the name of the county or the town is McMillian. The situation is father and a son run this newspaper. They have been 
doing investigative reporting on corruption in the sheriff's office, they released an audio recording of a conversation between the sheriff and a couple of, I think, county board members and a couple of other local officials where they were talking about wanting to lynch black people. They talked about wanting to murder the guys who run the newspaper and those of their bodies to shut them up so they would quit reporting about them. The governor of Oklahoma has called on all these people to resign. The sheriff is trying to claim that the audio recording was made illegally, which as far as I've been able to determine is not true. So if that little paper didn't exist, the people in this community would have no idea that they have elected officials who are talking about racially based violent crimes and murdering the local newspaper staff. That's a huge glaring example of why we matter. So it, it what, what it comes down to is there's all sorts of local information that people need to know that they simply are not going to get if there's not the small town local paper because Chances are the big regional daily paper that's an hour away is not going to notice. Chances are that the local TV news affiliates simply are not going to notice. Our communities need us. What do you think are the biggest problems for local newspapers, especially small local papers in Southwest Virginia? Uh, I think really it's two related trends, and this is true industry-wide. This is not just us. This is newspapers of every size of every scope everywhere throughout the industry and certainly in the United States. One, traditionally, our revenue model was based around print advertising sales. The internet came along. So for roughly 25 years now, we've been on this curve of traditional advertising revenue shrinking, subscriptions for printed newspapers shrinking, Consequently, newspaper staffs end up shrinking. The scope of what the newspaper can do shrinks. And then the related problem is because of all that, increasingly newspapers go out of business because they simply can't survive. The ones that stay in business increasingly cease to be locally owned, particularly family owned publications, which have this rock solid commitment to that community increasingly become owned by larger companies, and this is the case with our papers, companies that are based in some other state, and they have newspapers in multiple states. Depending on who owns you, that can lead to good things or it can lead to really awful things. No matter what happens, it tends to lead to smaller staffs, less ability to be at all the different meetings we need to be at, less ability to be watchdogs on all different aspects of the community because there simply are not enough bodies. And whatever other challenges we face mostly stem from those two related problems. Then I guess you really have to add in the third problem of information, whether it's news or whether it's propaganda, increasingly being siloed people increasingly choosing news outlets that support what they already want to believe and not being exposed to news outlets that are presenting other viewpoints, which feeds those first two problems because people mistrust national media, they mistrust regional media, and it's like this viral effect where they start to mistrust their local hometown media 
and it all just feeds on itself. Following on from that, given that some papers in our area have downsized or stopped publishing completely, how do you think the coal field can address those issues and continue to publish? The fact that we are owned by a bigger group, despite the fact that we've shrunk, just as everyone has shrunk, it's helpful for us on the revenue side to be part of a larger organization that has bigger financial oomph, so to speak. Another component of that is the fact that our three papers, in terms of revenue generation, actually are pretty much the top performers in our group. And this is newspapers over a five or six state area. We have the distinction of being the papers which have the deepest editorial experience, the deepest revenue generating experience. And to a great extent, our sister papers in other states are being shown us as an example of how to do certain things right. So we're kind of like the cool kids in the group. Yes. Uh, also, Mr. Lester, mentioning on how many local newspapers in Southwest Virginia have to close their doors in recent months, especially due to the pandemic and loss of local readership. What is your, um, all three of your newspapers' current presence online? You have social media sites or websites that you use to reach the public and reach the communities that you serve and want to engage with. Of course, the Coalfield Progress print edition publishes twice a week. Each of the other two papers publishes once a week. Each paper has its own website, its own Facebook page. We don't do Twitter or any of that. We launched Coalfield.com in, I think, 1998. Compared to a lot of other small papers in Southwest Virginia, we, we actually were a little bit ahead of the curve about going ahead and having an online presence. At least I can think of two or three other local papers here close by, a couple of which no longer exist, which never adopted an online presence at all. I think their owners were at a point in their careers where they didn't want to take that leap. Instead, they made the choice, we're, we're going to go ahead and retire and call it quits. Yes, and especially talking to the editor of a local newspaper such as yourself, Mr. Lester, it's very informative for us and our audiences listening at home who might have never ex um, had interpersonal interactions with journalists or been inside a news publishing office that, to learn about the importance and the role that local newspapers serve for their communities and those that choose to pick up and read local newspaper. However, as an editor, what do you believe is the importance of lo local newspapers toward community engagement and within communities? Especially in communities where not everyone has uh the internet infrastructure to get their news online or even televise? I think the main thing I would emphasize, going back to one of the first points I was making, the local paper is going to cover a lot of local news that you simply are not going to see or hear or read anywhere else. We were supposed to have the Great American Cleanup litter event tomorrow. They've postponed it by a week. Strongly suspect a lot of local folks who are interested in that event might not have realized it's been postponed if they don't read our paper. That's just that's one tiny little example. I could really cite Dickinson County as an even better example. For the most part, news that happens in Dickinson County is simply not being reported in any other newspaper. They simply don't go over there. What their board of supervisors does, what their local school board does, what their town councils do, nobody else is going to know about that stuff unless somebody sends them a press release. I get most of my news about like Norton, school board, even like the sports team, my brother used to play that. 
for Burton. Appreciate your readership. One final thought. A lot of people have been conditioned to think they should not have to pay to get news. And they miss out on all that local news that they're not going to get anywhere else if they're not willing to buy a paper off the rack or buy a subscription. Guys like me have to eat. We have to be able to pay our mortgage. And we work very hard. News has a dollar value. And people who want to understand what is happening in our communities should be willing. And in fact, in my opinion, should be eager to fork over this relatively small amount of money to be well-informed. I think we can certainly agree with how important local newspapers are for all of our communities, especially here where we live. And additionally, thank you, Mr. Lester, for coming on. Our discussions today have been really informative, showing that local newspapers play a vital role in engaging their communities, as well as being a source of information for those without internet access and for those in the community that just want to be able to connect and find out about local events happening in their areas and the local political information and social information that they need to know. Thank you again to our guests for coming on. Uh, thank you to all of you for listening. And thank you to our beneficent leader, Dr. Heather Evans, for allowing us to do a program. Well, thanks again to everybody for listening this week. And thanks to the students for leading the show for the last three weeks. Now, if you missed any piece of this today, I just want to reiterate, you can listen again locally on 90.7 WEHC and also in the surrounding communities, Wise FM, also over in Clintwood, in Big Stone Gap. Lots of different places air this show on 6 o'clock on Thursdays and Sundays at 1. And if you miss it at all, you can catch up by podcast. Go to Spotify, type in Red, White, and Confused. Also, we have a Facebook page. Please head there. Um, Share the show with your friends if you really enjoyed it. We hope that you enjoyed it. Uh, Share it with your friends. And we hope that you have a great rest of your week. Have a good one.